Microphone number three. Now, testing. Anyway, let's close in prayer. <laughs> I wonder, last Sunday night I got up to speak and, you know, put the thing in my pocket and got up and wasn't working. And Warren's on the controls and he said something. I couldn't quite get what he was saying. And anyway, it turned out I hadn't actually turned it on. I turned the mute off, but I hadn't turned the thing on. So that was my bad, my fault. And now this morning, we try a new one, and that's mucking around. Why am I saying all of this? I just wonder if this is like, you know, the enemy just trying to be distracting. And to that end, I don't know how you pray, but we need to pray about our systems and our electronics and things like that because they can quite easily just get in the road of things, can't they? They're great tools, but when they don't work, they become a great nuisance. Um, Anyway, I've had my little... Dummy spit, I'll be right now. Be good if we pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the midst of all of our weaknesses, do your work. We pray that you would frustrate and limit the evil one and his influences, even amongst us now. We know that he will seek to take the word that is planted as a seed, to take it away. So we pray against him and pray that you, by your spirit, might cast forth seed that takes root and brings forth good fruit in each of our lives. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things stood out in that passage for me when, it was, when I was reading it during the week and certainly again this morning when Michael read it. It says... Verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. This juxtaposition of loved but sick. And then at the end, down in verse 15, where Lazarus has actually now passed away, he's dead, and Jesus says, for your sake, I am glad that I wasn't there. And he goes on to say, why? So that you may believe, so that your faith will grow, be strengthened. They're strong statements. The one who loves us, allows us to be sick, still loves us. And even allows death. And in this instance, is glad for what even death will achieve. The increase of faith because of the miracle he is about to perform. John chapter 11 falls into four parts. We're going to look very quickly at all four parts this morning. Verses 1 to 16, the first part is about the disease, the preparation for the miracle. Verses 17 to 37 is about the arrival of Jesus. From wherever he is, he's a long way away, and now he's arrived and he's going to deal with death. Then verses 38 and following to 44, he talks about the miracle itself, the restoration to life, Lazarus brought back from the dead, Jesus' power over decay. And then finally the results, 45 to the end of the chapter. The chapter is saying that Jesus has the final word. He has the final word over disease, he has the final word over death, and he has the final word over decay. He's in charge. He has the final word. And the passage brings great honour and glory to him. Up until this point in John's Gospel, you have Jesus being rejected, and now you get him being almost hunted. And it's like this is the last miracle that Jesus will perform. He's now several months, not many months, from his own death. 
And in the midst of this, the world rejecting him, it's almost like the Heavenly Father is going to shine a spotlight upon him and bring great glory to him. The world may reject him, but God will honour him and glorify him. That's another truth that comes through. But for us this morning, Jesus has the last word. There are three things that happen to us that happens to our bodies after we're born and after we've grown up. Three things happen to us. Our bodies catch diseases, we get sick, we suffer, we experience pain and discomfort. Disease. Our bodies will die and there'll be sorrow expressed by those who loved us. Death. But then our bodies beyond that, we having vacated the body, the body will go through a process of decomposition, of decay. Disease, death and decay. And as I said, Jesus is the one who has the final word in each of those instances. I'm going to spend a fair bit of time in the first 16 verses and then if I get time, I'm going to race pretty much through the remaining paragraphs and then tie it together at the end. The Lord Jesus is away and we don't know how far away, but messengers come to see him with a message from Mary and Martha about his mate, Lazarus. And however long it takes them, the messengers, to get there, And Jesus stays two days and then makes the trip. But by the time he arrives at where Lazarus was, at Bethany, then he's been dead four days. It's difficult to figure out um, because the Bible doesn't give us the details. But probably it's like a three-day journey. This is my guess. Um, It's like it took them three days to get to him. He's way out of the land of Judea. He's nowhere near them. He's taken off because of the rejection of the people, the Jewish leaders, and because they intend to find him and kill him ahead of time. So three-day journey. Takes them three days, three days back. Jesus stays two days. On about halfway through those two days, my guess is that's when Lazarus passes away. But we don't know. And it's not overly important for the story. Jesus loved Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. We've heard about Mary and Martha in the other Gospels. Luke chapter 10 particularly, the story where Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha is the one in the kitchen frantically cooking and preparing. Remember that story? And in that story, Mary is the one with the great faith. In this chapter, it's Martha who has the great faith. These are two strong women, two close associated friends of the Lord Jesus And they lived in a little village called Bethany, which is just over the Mount of Olives, just two miles from Jerusalem. A man by the name of Frank Viola has written several books. And one of the books he's just written is Jesus' favourite place on earth. And it's about this family and about the the village of Bethany. So I commend that to you. It's a reflective retelling of the story through the eyes of Lazarus. It's a reflection. So Jesus is away. He's... Very close friends, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, are in a situation. And they send a message to him, informing him about Lazarus' situation. Jesus doesn't respond. Jesus doesn't even heal at a distance, which he's more than capable of doing. He delays his coming for a higher purpose. He loved them and he allows this situation to deteriorate. So here is the truth for us. If you're writing anything down, write this down this morning. It's a long sentence. I'll give it to you a couple of times. We may not know why we are suffering, but we can always take our troubles to Jesus, knowing that he loves us and that he will work for God's glory and our good in his time, not ours. We may not always know why we are suffering, 
But we can always take our troubles to Jesus, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he will work for God's glory and for our good in his time and not ours. The Lord allows, let me work through some of that quickly. The Lord allows those whom he loves to suffer. This goes directly contrary to some preachers and some theologies and they are far too simplistic and in my opinion they are just simply naive. There are people who teach and who believe that if you believe in the Lord Jesus then you won't get sick and if you do get sick then there's something wrong with you, there is a sin in your life. But if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you're a godly person then you ought never to experience suffering or illness. As I said, it's far too naive, it doesn't fit the facts. This passage clearly indicates that here are some people, not only who love Jesus, but whom Jesus loved, and they're in a crisis. The Lord allows those he loves to suffer. Verse 6 says that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was. It's worth thinking about. Love always does what is best for the one that is loved, but for them, I'm guessing, it would not have felt like he loved them. Lazarus would have been in some pain, certainly discomfort, maybe even a doctor was present. They watched him deteriorate over a period of time. So let me remind you that we should never interpret God's attitude towards us or his love for us by our suffering, by our circumstances. We should always understand our circumstances, our suffering, whatever it is we're going through, by his love. That that's the foundation. That God is predisposed towards us, to favour us, to care for us, to provide for us. And if we find ourselves in a situation where that is becoming questionable or doubtful, then regardless of how we are feeling, we ought to cast ourselves strongly on the foundation of truth that God loves and cares and he's not he's allowing this situation for some reason which might be a complete mystery to us but that's where you have to trust him you see that in mary and martha here they weren't lacking faith they had incredible faith when jesus does eventually turn up in verse 21 and 32 i think it is they both say the same thing these two sisters to jesus lord if you had have been here he wouldn't have died that's pretty big faith and then even Martha, she says something remarkable in verse, where is it, 32? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, verse 22, but even now, God will give you whatever you ask. He's been dead four days. And she says, but even now. That's pretty strong faith. So the Lord allows those he loves to experience difficulties, to suffer. Secondly, we will not always understand why we are going through the suffering. Jesus deliberately left his friends in sickness. He deliberately let it continue. And it is true that no physical condition, no situation is beyond him. He can heal a disease at a distance. He can just give the word. And one day he will. When he returns, he'll give that word. And there'll be a new heaven, there'll be a new earth. But for now, it is within his will to allow these sorts of things, disease and death and suffering and discomfort, to allow them in our lives 
And his intention is to use them both for his glory and for achieving his purposes, which is strengthening faith and trust in us. After Lazarus died, for your sake, I am glad that I wasn't there, he says to the disciples, so that you may grow, so that you may believe. You're going to experience something. Well, I trust and expect God's doing a similar thing through us in our life circumstances. It also is worth saying and reminding ourselves this morning that our health and our happiness, does God care about our health? Yes. Does God care about our happiness? Yes. But our health and our happiness is not his first concern. His first concern is to achieving his own purposes, to bring glory and honour to the Father. That's what Jesus does here. What action of mine, it's almost like he's thinking, will glorify my Father and develop faith in my followers? That's his first concern. Next, we can always know, always take our concerns to Jesus. That's what the two girls do. They send a messenger. I don't know how they knew where he was, but they must have, and they sent a messenger. And notice this, that when they give the message, it's not a a demand or a claim. They simply say, Lord, the one you love is sick, and they leave it with him. They don't say, Lord, the one who loves you is sick. That could be a little bit manipulative. But Lord, the one you love is sick. Based upon you, your attitude towards him, just informing you. They don't demand that Jesus come and heal them. They don't claim healing by faith or command Jesus to heal them. They don't appeal to anything in themselves. They appeal to something within the Lord Jesus. Simply let, it, let him know and left it with him. For him to decide to do what he thought would be the best thing to do. And Jesus did. And he delayed. So we need to realise that sometimes love, his love, will include delays. God does not work according to our timetables, does he? We often wish that he did, but he doesn't. And sometimes he delays. Both Mary and Martha, when the Lord Jesus does eventually come, they have the same perspective. I don't think it's a complaint Lord, if you had have been here, he wouldn't have died. I don't think it's a complaint. But Jesus' response is, and awareness is, by you going through this, you are going to see the glory of God. You're going to see more of his power. You're going to grow in your understanding of him. That's one of the reasons why God will sometimes delay. That he's stretching us that is inviting us to know more about him and to rely upon him, to cast all of our cares upon him. His delays are never because of his indifference. It's always because he's got a purpose and a reason and he's working that out. There are some things in life far more important than our own physical health. Why do we exist? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Note the order. To glorify God. That leads to 
enjoying him forever. We can factor into our lives that when we're going through circumstances, sometimes the Lord will delay. The Lord allows those whom he loves to suffer. We don't always know why. We can always take our concerns to him and realise that he loves us, but his love sometimes incorporates delays. But we can trust that he is the one who is at work towards God's glory and he'll do it in his own time. That's what that strange response, I thought it was a strange response of Jesus to the disciples when he said, let's go. And they said, Lord, do you know what you're doing? You know if we're going to go, the Jews are going to stone you. Um, and Jesus' response is, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man walks by the day, the man who walks by the day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's lights. When the walk by night, that he stumbles, for he has no light. What? What's that mean? I think what Jesus is saying is, the number of hours in a daylight is set by God. The number of days in my life is set by God. You can't lengthen the day, you can't shorten it. You can't lengthen your life. No others can shorten it. Our times are in his hands. God has apportioned the number of birthdays we'll have before the day we were born. That's what I think Jesus means. That he works according to God's timetable. And I think Jesus is probably also alluding to the fact that the day is nearly spent. Because he knows that when he performs this miracle, he is signing his own death warrant. This resurrection of Lazarus will motivate the Jews for a search party and will lead to his eventual arrest and death from a human political perspective. I mean, God is working his own purposes out according to his own timetable. So Jesus clearly puts first things first. He had a higher aim in allowing Lazarus both to remain sick and then eventually to die. And he had a longer view. What will be the ultimate outcome of this? And he says very clearly at the beginning, either to the messengers or just to his disciples, verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. This sickness will not end ultimately in death. And it doesn't. It ends in life and glory. <clears throat> so just to remind, uh, repeat a little bit, this is the purpose of our life as well. Whether we are sick or well, whether we're healed or not healed, whether the circumstances are welcomed or unwelcomed. Our job is to glorify God, to join him in what he is trying to achieve and to submit to him and to honour him through it. The disciples must have been relieved when Jesus didn't go the first time. It's been like putting your head back into the lion's mouth or something like that. They must have been grateful that good, we're not going back into enemy territory. And then several days later, they must have been surprised, shocked, stunned. What? And they question him. Do you realise what you're doing? A bit like us, isn't it? Jesus does things that we think are not the right thing to do and we question him. Then Jesus gives his response. My times are in God's hands. And it's the Father's will that I go. And so we are going. He doesn't say I'm going. He says... Let us go. Not sure how they felt about that, but it took Thomas to persuade them. Let's go with him. In part of the motivation for Jesus to go, he also says Lazarus is asleep, which they misunderstood by him saying, oh, well, he's been sick, so sleep is good, so he'll recover. And Jesus 
was speaking euphemistically. And so he says, Lazarus is dead. It's interesting. Jesus is not simply, you know, um, frightened to use the words or speak of the reality of death. It's not that. It's not using a euphemism. What he's doing is giving his perspective on what death really is. It's temporary. He's asleep. He will awaken. That's all death is for us as well. It's a temporary sleep. It's a temporary situation from which he will awaken us because he is the sovereign Lord. Okay, we may not know why we suffer, but we can always take our troubles to Jesus, knowing that he loves us, that he is working both for God's glory and for our good, and he's doing that in his time. Jesus is the one who has final words over disease and now over the presence of death. He comes, he sees the two sisters, he meets firstly Mary, uh, Martha, and in the process of meeting her, verse 21, 22, she says, you know, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus then deals with Martha very differently to how he deals with Mary. It's worth reflecting and reading carefully. With Martha, there's a lot of talking. With Mary, there's not a word. The Lord Jesus seems to be a person who is sensitive to different people with different needs. Martha certainly is the one who comes out with a stronger faith, as I already pointed out. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But even now, after four days, even now, if you pray, if you say so, he can come back. And Jesus stretches her. He challenges her about her faith. Do you really believe that? She makes a marvellous confession of faith. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you are the Christ, the one who is to come into the world. And then he says, go and get Mary. And Mary comes and she's completely overwhelmed. She says the same thing. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But she is broken. She's silent. And Jesus doesn't say a word to her. But then there's something strange in this passage. And it gives us some insight into the person of Jesus. In verse 33, the NIV and perhaps many um, modern versions or English versions, we, they, the translators struggle to know what exactly does that mean? And so they're uncomfortable in how they translate it here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And you get it, same word down in verse 38. Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. This same word, Greek word, translated this way, deeply moved, is used three other times in the Gospels. And every other time when it's used, it's more translated along the lines of Jesus being angry, Jesus being frustrated or furious at their lack of faith or whatever the cause of it was. The word literally is like, is used for the snorting of a horse. This, <clears throat> this groaning deep within him. Now that's what it means, but how does that apply here? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, frustrated, angry, furious, some word like that, deeply groaning in spirit 
and troubled. Where have you laid him? He says, come and see, Lord. Jesus wept. The Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more moved. Not moved emotionally with sorrow, but moved with annoyance, with fury. And it's difficult to, what's he angry about? What's he furious or frustrated by? Is he cranky at the devil because of death? Is that what it is? Is he frustrated and, and furious because families have been divided because of death? And that's never what God wanted in the intention. He's just, he's just miffed at sin and its consequences. Is that what it is? Or in the second one, is he a bit fed up with the Jewish people who are pretending to be weeping and, you know, the professional mourners and, and they're just being hypocritical and that cheeses him off. Is that what it is? I don't know, but there's something that disturbed him. And then certainly when he was weeping, I've always asked the question, why did he weep? Now I've got an answer, but it's my answer. So I invite you certainly to disagree with me. Some commentators, some people believe Jesus is weeping simply out of sympathy and identifying with Mary, who is also weeping. You know, there, there are people like that. They identify with, and if, if you're weeping, they will weep with you. They identify with it on the emotional level. That could be the case for the Lord Jesus, but I don't think that's what it is. Was he weeping for himself? That he really did love Lazarus. He really was his mate, and now his mate's gone, and so he's just sad for himself. Some commentators say that. I don't, that's not it. Jesus knows what he's about to do. This is my theory. And I'm not alone. There are others who think this, but this is what I've thought. I think Jesus is weeping for Lazarus. I think he's sad because of what he's now going to put Lazarus through. Where is Lazarus? Well, his body's in the tomb. But where is, the pers where is Lazarus, soul and spirit? He's in another state, in Hades in a place called paradise. And Jesus is about to call someone from that world back into this world of sin and of suffering and to die again, as well as he's going to sign his own, Jesus is going to sign his own death warrant. One of the early church fathers, one of the ancient church traditions was that when Lazarus came back, he never smiled again. Well, we don't know that. But there is an observation I want to make in a moment. Jesus has power and authority, the last word over disease, death and circumstances. Jesus has the last word over death. And Jesus has the last word over decay. Lazarus has been dead four days. The body would have started to decompose. His physical face would have started to change. The Jews had a tradition that <clears throat> when a person died, their spirit hung around, didn't leave for either three or four days. And the spirit didn't leave until the composition of the face had started. And the reason the spirit left was because it no longer recognised the body. That's their worldview, their perspective on what was going on. So here is Jesus now, and Lazarus has been dead four days, and he goes to the tomb and he says, remove the stone. 
I even I like that. That's another reminder. How does God work in this world? In cooperation with us. He gives us things to do. I'm about to do something and I want you to do your bit. He did it with the feeding of the 5,000. He did it with the blind man. He's doing it here again with the resurrection of Lazarus. I'm about to do something. Work with me here. And at that point, Mary, who had great faith, her faith fails her, just like us. We can believe God for anything, but when it comes to a particular situation that we have to put our trust and belief in Him, then our, excuse me, our common sense kicks in, our logic kicks in, our past experience kicks in, our fears kick in, and we just can't go on believing it. She says, Lord, He's been dead four days. You know what you're doing? And he basically says, Mary, you're going to trust me or you're going to follow your own reasoning. Didn't I tell you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God take away the stone? And they do. And at that point, the Son of God speaks to his Father in heaven and he also speaks to his friend in Hades. His voice penetrates the universe. And he just simply says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. You always hear me. But I want to thank you publicly and before the event so that people will know that you're the one who is doing this. It is your will. Glorify yourself. And then he gives the word, Lazarus, come here. And his voice penetrates all the way down to Hades. Lazarus hears it, returns, and if they're peering into this darkened tomb, they would have seen some sort of movement and eventually they would have seen the bandaged man and the blinking in the sunlight probably shuffle his way somehow towards the tomb's entrance. To which Jesus... I bet you the people there were what? Frightened? Amazed? They would think it's wonderful as well as scary. And Jesus simply says, untie him, take the bandages off and let him go. Now it doesn't say that, but what I think Jesus is saying is, and don't ask him any questions. Notice Lazarus doesn't say anything about where he has been for the last four days. Now, I want to make a point, I guess pastorally. The Apostle Paul once had an experience where he was caught up to the third heaven, into heaven itself. And he said, I saw things and heard things that I am not permitted to tell you. There is Lazarus in the tomb, Hades four days and back from the dead. And there is no revelation about what was it like? What did you do? Where did you go? Did you see anybody? Did they know you? All of the questions that we have, we are not told. Because it is not God's will for us to know. He has told us what we need to know. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that's enough. Trust him. So therefore, I am very sceptical about those very popular books, and I know some of you have read them, about the boy who spent 90 minutes in heaven, or somebody who had a tour through hell. I really struggle with that, that these people have these experiences, they write their books and then they make significant profit. If they didn't make any profit, if all of the money was donated away, then I might be more inclined to listen. Lazarus, not a word about the next life and I think that's a big clue. That which has been revealed has been revealed and that's it. Now we have to trust. Jesus has the last word over disease, over death and over decay. 
What he did then, he'll do again in the future. We too will rise at his command. The response of the people here is that verse 46, 45, 46, some people believed and received in him. In fact, if you read through John 11, you'll hear that word believe again and again and again and again and again. This happened so that people would believe, so people would trust in Jesus. Verse 47 and following, you have the Jews who are resisting and rejecting. And in fact, they put out a, a hunt for the Lord Jesus. And then you have the Lord Jesus, verse 54 and following, removing himself and simply waiting for the end, waiting for the Father to say, now. And that's when he'll ride the donkey into Jerusalem, right at the end, announcing that here he is, the Messiah, whom they can capture and kill at the Father's directive. This event, Lazarus' resurrection, as I've already said, sealed Jesus' fate. He gave Lazarus life by the, at the cost of his own, at his own death, just like the gospel. Jesus gives us life at the cost of his own via his death on the cross. The Jewish response is, the Jewish leaders, we've got to kill him before the next feast. This is getting out of hand. And for the Lord Jesus at that tomb with Lazarus, probably thought in a few weeks, I, like him, will be bandaged, I'll be buried, and I'll be entombed. And all because of what I've done here today. It's certainly sufficient for us simply to know Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he has told us all that we need to know. Let me finish with this. When King Edwin, the king of Northumbria, centuries ago, received Christian missionaries for the very first time in England, King Edwin brought the missionaries to a large banqueting hall, and he wanted to ask them questions about this new religion. And while they're having lunch, a sparrow flew in from the outside, flew through the hall, through the lights and the shadows, and then flew, went all the way down the end, and then flew out a window at the end into the unknown. And Edwin, observing that, made the comment to the Christian missionaries, that sparrow is like us. We come from we don't know where. We live our life in the lights and the shadows, and then we fly out the window, we fly into some great unknown. Can your religion tell us what happens in the unknown? And the answer is, yes, Jesus. Jesus is the one who through his death and through his resurrection has prepared the way for us into the unknown. He doesn't give us details, he just gives us himself and says for us to trust him. He is the one who has the last word over disease, over death and over decay. We may not know why we are suffering, but we can take our troubles to Jesus, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he is at work, that he'll work for God's glory and for our good, and he will do it in his time. Let's pray. Well, because of time, I think we might just finish. How about we stand together? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, disease, death, decay will submit to your command. We pray that your will might be worked out in our lives. When we find ourselves in the midst of suffering or disease, Lord, enable us 
to trust and to love you, being fully assured of your love for us, of your purposes and of your timing. In the midst, Father, of death, help us likewise to trust that you take those who follow and believe in Jesus into your very presence. We don't need any more information, for we have great assurance and hope in him. Strengthen in us the reality of this faith in our lives in the here and now and in our future life and departure. Lord Jesus, have your way in our lives and in our church and dismiss us now with your blessing. Grant to us a sense of your presence, of your peace and of your purposes. Fill us with your spirit and help us to be fully obedient to you. We ask this in your name and for your honour. Amen. God bless you everybody. Happy Mother's Day.